welcome back to What Brought You Here Today. On today's episode, I sit down with Bianca, a certified clinical trauma specialist currently practicing out of Windsor, Ontario. She is also the owner of Mindfully Me Group Practice. I do want to provide a warning that this conversation talks about suicide and severe mental health. We talk about Bianca's struggle with mental health, suicidal ideation, her healing journey, as well as the imposter syndrome and the importance of seeking support. Please take care while listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to What Brought You Here Today. I am Ryan, the host of the podcast, and I am joined with a fellow therapist, Bianca. Hi, Bianca. Hello. Welcome. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so glad this worked out. This is going to be such a great conversation about mental health, therapies, our journeys as therapists, and we're just going to see where the conversation goes. Sounds good to me. So a little bit of background, I met Bianca through the Your Human Therapist book club, which is also how I met Andrea and Cassandra and Lindsay, whose podcasts have come out, and Stephanie F., whose podcast came out last week. So I've really been fortunate to be part of this community and make a lot of connections and build relationships and network, but I think on a deeper level than just kind of the networking that we're used to within our field. Um, So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, my name is Bianca Safina, and I'm from Ontario, Canada. For all the American followers, I actually border Detroit, Michigan. So I'm looking into Detroit right now from my bedroom. So I'm right on the border. Yeah, that's so so crazy. It is. It is. I spent a lot of time in Detroit, Michigan as well. My sister actually just bought, she just leased an apartment there. So we'll be kind of dual back and forth. But my title is a certified clinical trauma specialist and I specialize in trauma. And I took a very unique route to get here. And I'm excited to talk a little bit about how I got here. But I do own a private practice that just turned into a group practice November 2023. I've added five therapists to my team. And I'm super grateful. And then I teach psychology part-time at our local college that I graduated from, the exact program. And then I offer some business mentoring of therapists that want to get into some private practice. So I'm a little bit all over the place, but it's been a really incredible journey. We like to call all over the place multifaceted. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Right? Controlled chaos in the best way possible. So you don't have like the typical credentialing letters after your name that we are maybe accustomed to in the mental health field. Let's talk a little bit about why and how that happened. Sure. So as you know, too, probably three sessions into book club, I, I disclaimer, disclaimer, you can tell it's a little bit. I'm working on being really confident about that, but there's been some stuff in my past with past acquaintances that haven't been super supportive. So I'm always really hesitant when I come into a group of professionals because that imposter syndrome is real. But I will tell you, so let's just start. Let's just start from the beginning. I had graduated high school and oh my gosh, did I struggle with my mental health. I struggled all throughout growing up, right? When I was a child, severe signs of mental health. But of course, growing up in the 90s, mental health wasn't looked at like it is now right? It was very kind of, we don't really talk about it. It's not really recognized. So I really struggled. Then high school came and all my friends applied to university. And to be quite frank and not to be, you know, a little bit of a trigger warning, I had plans to take my own life on my 18th birthday. And that was set in stone. I had a plan. So when it came time to apply for school, 
I was working at a gym full time and I said, I'm not going to go to school because why even try? And then what happened is my parents really encouraged me to apply for some programs just to apply. And I applied to three random programs, one of them being like di dietetic technician, physiotherapist assistant, and a child and youth care practitioner. When I took it, it was child and youth work. I got waitlisted for all three programs. My grades were definitely not where they should have been for post-secondary education. And I remember being in my basement after Frost Week. Do you guys have Frost Week or like in the States? So it's kind of like this big party for to welcome the new students in. And I remember being in my parents' basement with all my friends surrounding me and the landline rang. And back then it was <laughs> landlines, right? It wasn't a cell phone. And my parents were like, Bianca, it's for you. It's the college. And they said, Bianca, you're next on our wait list for a three-year advanced diploma in child and youth work. Would you like it? You literally have two minutes to make up your mind to get, and the first day of classes was yesterday. So you have to come in today. And I remember looking and all of these things went through my mind. One was like, I have a full-time job that I just secured. Two, I really don't want to be here. I was incredibly passively and actively suicidal. And I struggled throughout all of this. But three, in that moment, my passive suicidality actually came in as a positive. And it said, Bianca, what do you have to lose? You're already planning on taking your own life. If you fail, nothing's going to change. So why not try? And in that moment, it was the weirdest thing where my suicidality was actually comforting. And I said, quite literally, I can just give up. And if I give up, that's fine. I literally have nothing to lose. So I told the lady on the phone, I'll take it. And my friends all left. And my parents quite literally drove me to college on my first day. And I entered the program and it was ultimately saved my life. I learned all about mental health in that program, how it presents in children, behavioral, all of these things. And everything started to come to piece together and kind of make sense. Through that program, I got some really great working experiences. We had placement, so we had to do a certain amount of hours to graduate, and it really opened up my eyes. Through that program, though, I struggled immensely, and my mental health was evident. And through that program, I was more focused on attachment with peers and boys, external validation, and partying. So when you mix that with trying to be in a really, it was an advanced diploma too. So it's quite a, it's, it's a fast paced program. It's, it's equivalent. It's almost equivalent to a bachelor here in Ontario. So like, what should be, what is that called in the States? Bachelor, bachelor. right? Yes. Yes. So it's, it's it, like there, you can either take the three-year advanced diploma or four-year undergrad of this program. So I, had, I opted for the college, the three-year advanced diploma. I just barely got by this program when it came time, because it's bridged to the university as well for a degree in social work, psychology, or gender studies. I jumped in and I did psychology as well. Then I started working in the field and it really opened up my eyes to a lot of things. I actually started working with adults and it was adults with serious persistent mental health. It was a lot of them were diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar and severe mood disorders. So they were in assisted living. So a lot of our job was medication administration, narcotic monitoring and crisis intervention. And I really started to love working with adults. And I really started to love working with mental health. And I went through university, it was only an additional two years, came out with a bachelor degree in psychology, and I was working in the field. I worked three jobs at a time throughout my whole six years working in community mental health. I have quite a diverse kind of range of experiences. I worked in clinical, residential, the education system, both our public and our Catholic system. I did some respite work out in the community, and then I did youth justice. So working with kids, helping them get their charges dropped. It was the most incredible experience. 
But through these six years of experience, I realized that there's a lot more than just our textbooks or our schooling taught us about mental health. And the Western medical model is incredibly outdated. So there was a lot that came through. But I guess long story short, how did I get to where I am? So I went to my supervisor at the time when I was working in youth justice. And I said, look, it, I build rapport with these kids. I've always wanted to do counseling. And when COVID hit, I went down this deep dive of trauma-informed care, counseling modalities, and really understanding why people act in the way that they do. Of course, we know nature versus nurture, but I wanted more. So when I came across trauma-informed care and the way that the neurobiology of trauma and toxic stress actually affect our nervous system and our brain development, everything started to make sense. So I went to my executive director and I said, look it, I build rapport with these kids through our risk assessment. I spend two hours with them. By the end of it, they're word vomiting everything <laughs> that they're dealing with. And then I send them to a wait list out in the community for counseling. They've asked me, Bjelka, can I stay with you? And I said, we don't offer that here. Long story short, my executive director said, if you can put it on paper and make it work, make sure it's ethical and legal, I'm fine if you offer one-to-one -one counseling services. And I was supervised by an MSW there. So somebody with their master's of social work. I started counseling there and it really, really spoke to me. And then I actually took a, a webinar for CYCs in private practice. I didn't realize that as a child and youth care practitioner with the advanced diploma, I could open up a private practice. A little bit of constraints because you can't practice the controlled act of psychotherapy. But I did some more research and I found that if I could have two people speak to my competency, they could grandfather me into our local college to get my registration to practice psychotherapy, which I did. I went to two of my supervisors. I spent 650 hours directly underneath them. They spoke to my competencies, my ethics, my scope. And then I got grandfathered in and I got my license to practice psychotherapy. Two years later, I had another call with the college to ensure that all my documents were in place, all my supervision was in place. And I am now eligible to practice the controlled act of psychotherapy with adults as well. And it was like a whole turnaround runaround, but it was the best decision I ever made, Ryan, because Part of me is full of imposter syndrome. As you hear me word vomit in the book club, first thing I say is, I actually don't have my master's and I feel like I have to disclose that to professionals. And, but the best thing that happened to me is that instead of spending two years or four years in my MA, I spent the last five years down a deep dive of application of modalities that were trauma-focused and emotionally focused and experiential and bottom-up. So working with the body deeper than talk therapy. And I was mentored by some incredible professionals along the way. But that's kind of like the whole runaround on how I'm able to practice and how I kind of got to the position that I am. There's a lot of things in between that, but that's kind of the short, shortcut. I mean, that's such a long journey and non-traditional. Yes. But you are like flourishing and thriving in a private practice, in a group private practice, nonetheless. Yes. Without the kind of like air quote typical credentials that we see. Yes. Yes. And I think I'm also learning being from the United States that credentialing in Canada is is different, right? As I'm sure it is in many other countries. Like it lab like the labels are different, the letters are different, what we call ourselves is different. But how cool is it that you got to take this totally alternative path and kind of essentially make it what you want to make it. And we're doing the same thing. It sounds cool, but I am <laughs> like my therapist literally looked at me quite literally two years ago and said, Bianca, look at the paper on the wall, the masters. Okay. Yeah. Are you going for it? 
if you if you want it, we're going for it. Okay, we're going to drop this imposter syndrome. If you're not and you're confident in your decision, this is where this conversation stops because you're more than competent. Yeah. And you know, like, you know how to legally and ethically practice. So just stop it right here. And of course, I struggle and I go back and forth. But as I hired my team, all five of them have their master's degree. And not once did anyone ever look at me and say, and they've all asked to be supervised by me and kind of be mentored by me. And not once did somebody say, oh, Bianca, like you don't have a master's degree. Like, I don't know if you're as competent or I don't know if I feel confident being a part of your practice. They've been all really intrigued and respectful. And I think as time comes and my confidence builds, and honestly, Ryan, my mentors, I would not be in the position that I am without my mentors. My community book club changed my life. And I know that sounds so silly, but being in a community that welcomes me for who I am and not really looking at those letters behind my name and being, I don't know, on the same level as these incredible therapists was just so, it was what my confidence and what my, you know, what my soul really needed. But my mentors, Dr. Robert Broughton, the CEO of Arizona Trauma, Dr. Mike, who's the creator of Memi, which I'm trained in, Kina, the CPTSD therapist on TikTok. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but there's been a lot of people in my life that have believed in me and they have lots of letters behind their name. And they're like, Bianca, like, just make sure everything you're doing is appropriate and correct. But these are letters and they don't necessarily mean much as long as you're really making up for that through continuing ed and professional development. So, yeah. What I mean, that's amazing advice. Right. I I want to come back to the imposter syndrome because I think that we could have a really beautiful conversation on that. But I am curious, with the severe mental health and the suicidality that you were experiencing at the start, that you were experiencing at the start of your program, when did that sort of subside? I think we're we're kind of learning maybe that like passive thoughts never really fully go away. Like intrusive thoughts never really fully go away. We just learn to manage them. But I am curious when you kind of came out of that fog and realized, like, I have a bigger purpose. I want to live. That's a great question. To be brutally honest here, but when I got a hold of my partying and I stopped using drugs and alcohol, I will tell you if you're somebody that is struggling, and I'm not saying that everyone's suicidality comes from substances, but when I started to eat properly, take take care of my body through gentle movement, surround myself with people who celebrated me for who I was, you know, worked through my attachment with my parents, worked through what my suicidality, what was the underlying driver through my suicidality, right? And typically it was overwhelmed. When I felt so overwhelmed, all I wanted to do was take my own life. I had, there was a decreased, I didn't have the coping skills or distress tolerance to deal with those feelings. They were so strong and encompassing that I just wanted to just not be here anymore. But I will say, to be honest, the passive suicidality is, is there sometimes, but quite infrequently and not as strong. And I have the skills and tools to say, and once we talk about parts work, I say like, thank you for being here. You know, I appreciate you being here, but you know, we're adults now. I'm 28. I have the skills to work through this. I don't want to take my own life anymore. I know that this will pass. But quite frankly, when I started to take care of my body and my mind, slow down significant because all throughout this experience though through university and college I was working at a bar full-time so I did marketing advertising and I was a full-time bartender and server so that kind of environment it's not abnormal to to grab a drink with your coworkers after work but then when you're grabbing a drink four times a night it's not usually just one drink severe toll on my mental health when I also started to live in my purpose I found when I was didn't have purpose is when 
I found that I was lacking that drive to stay alive and that drive to make a difference. I just felt like I was existing. So it all kind of came together, I suppose. And being really real with myself as well. What am I doing to contribute to my mental health? Who am I surrounding myself with? And I say that lightly because I never want someone to think that I'm saying they're the reason why they feel the way that they do. But I think it's really important to gently look at the situations we put ourselves in or we found ourselves in. Maybe we're not consciously putting ourselves in those situations and realize how they're impacting our well-being and the way that we feel about ourselves. So, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really beautifully said. And like is true across the board, right? The way that we, the way that we treat ourselves, what we put into our bodies, how we like feed our souls does have an impact on our mental health. 1,010%. It is not 100% external. It is also internally, you know, internally impacted. Like I've, I think I've shared like in various settings that I, Alcohol really increases my anxiety. Like anxiety is a really real thing for me. Yes. And because of that, I have significantly, almost completely cut out alcohol. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sleeping better. My intrusive thoughts are less. I don't feel so irritable. But it took like, I'm 38. It took me a long time to realize like, oh, it is alcohol that's making me feel this way. You know? (laughs) And part of that I think is we live in a society too, where it's almost celebrated to like, it's expected or celebrated to have a drink to it. Like the social expectation around like drinking and we get, we get together and we gather at bars and restaurants. And now I think, especially here in the States, like more and more restaurants are becoming more cognizant of alcohol and kind of like offering low proof and no proof and other options, but which I think is amazing. But I think it takes a long time for people to maybe realize and accept that this is something that I am choosing to do Mm -hmm. and that I'm doing to myself and that's impacting my mental health. And I can control that and make it better. Absolutely. And it just so crazy because alcohol is also a coping, right? A lot of people reach for that glass of wine or they reach. And I was the exact same way. I, hard shift. I'm going to talk to my coworkers over a beer, right? <laughs> but excuse me. But then it's that like, it's that cycle. It's almost like a, a snow, it's that snowball effect, right? And then you're like, oh my God, I'm eight drinks deep. One, what am I doing with my car? Two, now I have to Uber home. Three, I feel like crap the next morning. And for you, you have anxiety. For me, it's like this freeze response for the next four days. I cannot get out of bed. I have no energy. I'm fatigued. I feel so alone. And I didn't realize that like there was a pattern here. Every time I overdrink or I drank excessively, this is what would have, this is what happened. So I think it was really important. And it's crazy too. Society promotes it so much. It's in movies, yeah. all around. There's billboards, right? We know this with alcohol. So it's very conflicting for people to say, my coping. The one thing that I reach for, the only thing to take that ease off at nighttime or whatever is actually destroying me in the long run, you know? Right. And I think, yeah, it's really hard, I think, sometimes for people to just be able to, like, accept that. Mm-hmm. Because it does feel so good in the moment. It is enjoyable in the moment. It is fun to socialize and have a beer or a cocktail. Like, And it, like, I love beer. I mm-hmm. love the way it tastes. I love craft beer, like, but it impacts me so much 
that I don't love it anymore. Like, I'm okay without it. And I think that's really hard too when we, like, we learn to enjoy it, right? Like, it, it, it becomes enjoyable. We enjoy the taste. We enjoy the texture, like the whole experience. And then what do we replace it with? Or what do we find in addition to, to better manage our mental health? Which I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> but uh, you, you, we have to find different coping, yeah. right? Different stuff. And it's, it's really hard because there's times where I have a bad day at work and my mind still, my little intrusive, my little part says, you know, you really deserve a glass of wine. But then myself yeah. comes in. It's like, I could do that, but like, think about what that's going to do for me. It's going to give me maybe 20 minutes of relaxation, but then it's going to turn into anxiety spiral. It's going to turn into me feeling groggy in the morning, you know? So if anyone's listening, that is kind of, you know, assessing their relationship with alcohol, think about what it does for you in the moment, okay? The narrative, you're telling yourself, well, it's going to make me relax, but then be very true with yourself about the narrative. What is it going to do after that relaxation? Is the risk worth the reward here? What is it going to do in the long term? And I think that's something I use with myself a lot is, okay, sure, 15 minutes of, you know, relaxation versus the next two days of me feeling like absolute crap, you know? And I think it's part of the routine. Yes. Like we just automatically know that it's the end of our day. We can have a drink or mm-hmm. we just automatically start our day with our giant coffees. Yes. Which, you know, now I'm, now that I've reduced alcohol, I'm like, maybe it's caffeine that's impacting my anxiety still, <laughs> but I'm not ready to give up coffee. I, I will manage it other ways. Yes. <laughs> then we'll throw some four, seven, eight breathing in there. If I can have my espresso. Yes. Yeah. Like, I'm not there yet. This is what I need. This makes me feel happy. I know that it's not, it it doesn't have the lasting impacts that alcohol does, right? Like I can still sleep fine. I can, I don't get irritable from it. If anything, I get a little more happy from it. But I think it does still sometimes like ramp up the thoughts. Oh yeah. Right. And make me feel a little bit frazzled. But that's, that's something I'm working through. So Let's talk about the imposter syndrome because I think it's really working in mental health is like a mind fuck, for lack of a better word, sometimes. Yep. Right. And we go through all of this training, we spend all of these hours learning how to help ourselves, how to help other people. And then we are thrust out into the world and expected to have the answers for everything all the time. But on the flip side of that, also not treated that way. And so I just met with some parents right before this. And I was, I was like, I don't have all the answers. I'm also a parent. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work every time. Mm-hmm. Like, even with like some of the kids I work with, I'm like, I, I don't have the answer for you on this. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you right now in this moment, but I will think about it. And next time I will find something for you. But I think the expectation is like you as a therapist are supposed to fix me. Yes. And I, I come to you or I bring my child to you to fix me. And you're not, we're not broken, right? This is kind of a longstanding theme that I have of like, nobody's broken. Yes. But that only feeds into the imposter syndrome of that we, we are not and we never will be good enough as therapists or counselors or trauma specialists, whatever it is. 
I find that it's really big. See, I started working with kids, Brian, and then I moved to adults. And I love kids. They light my soul on fire. But I was having a really hard time with parental expectations of like, here, here's my kid for an hour. I want them to come out with A, B, and C done, right? And But when we look at the home environment, you know, a lot of my kids' sessions turned into family sessions. And here I am as a 28-year-old, you know, therapist that does not have children of her own. So I very, tried to tread as lightly as possible when it comes to parental sessions. But I think it's, you know, what's really great, though, is a couple of times I've been working with kids and then I built a really great report to parents. I said, look, it, I'm going to be quite frank with you. I think you also need some support as well. And when I start educating about intergenerational trauma, nervous system regulation, they're very intrigued. I've had some parents say no thanks and not come back. But I've had a lot of parents be really involved with their children's mental health journeys, which has been amazing because we know that there's an environmental factor as well in the world that they're growing up in is, for lack of a better term, the world that these kids are growing up in right now with social media, with everything at their fingertips, with pornography, the over-sexualized, the behaviors that I'm seeing in high school kids when it comes to drugs and alcohol and the overdoses that we are seeing and are, I don't know how bad it is over there, but our high school kids are ODing in the bathroom. We're seeing a big thing with pills over here. Oxy, um, Xanax. Xanax has always been around, but oxys and fentanyl is really big in our high school demographic right now. I had kids smoking their pharmaceuticals. They sprinkle it on their marijuana. Like it's, Whippets also found their way into Windsor too. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like the, you know, like the whipped cream yep. canister. Oh, yeah. I'm like, where are you learning these things? And I, not, I know, and I myself, was not an innocent child. I don't know, like I'm very grateful to be clubbed, but if I engaged in the behaviors that I did today, my friend group would be a lot smaller than it is. And I don't know if I would still be standing here when I think about some of the things or the things that I took or the things that I just YOLO'd, right? That was a big thing when we were growing up. You only live once. But I think about that now and I'm like, I'm so glad that I, you know, I am still here because I could have been one of those statistics. But it's hard. The imposter syndrome is always there. And the biggest thing that my mentor told me is, Bianca, creating space for people, of course, working towards their goals, but creating that non-judgmental space and making sure you're regulated where they're picking up on your nervous system state is actually healing in itself. So you don't have to have all the answers. But if you can just regulate yourself and be with that client where they're at, it's helpful. But then another thing, Ryan, is like, how do we help somebody in a crumbling society? When I don't know about your cost of living in, in the U.S. right now, but we cannot afford to live over here. The housing market is so screwed. The Our groceries and inflation is just, it, people can't afford to live. So how do I fix that? Right? People are coming to me saying, Bianca, I'm suicidal because I cannot put food on my table for my children. I don't have a family to look after me You know, in my old age. I don't want to be here. How do I provide a solution for that? Do I change their thinking? Like, you know, like that's just, it's emphasizing and really providing empathy and compassion for those thoughts because yeah, I'm right there with you. We are living in the most screwed up society and I'm supposed to have, like people's mental health is not the problem. It's what they're trying to live in is the problem. And I try not to go too much that way because I don't want to be doom and gloom, but I also want to be really realistic and tell people, hey, it's not your thinking that just stinks or it's not you that just has distorted thoughts. We're trying to live in a very screwed up society right now. The world is on fire. We're watching the genocide happen. We have access to all this information, which is of course positive, but it's also destroying us as humans. And I have one of my therapists on my team has family in Gaza. And it's just like, 
It's a lot. So like, how do you tell somebody like, hey, let's change your thinking or let's work on that when like literally everything's on fire around us. I feel like we have like a cup of water and we're just trying to like with like a forest fire. We're just like, okay, you know, like, how do you feel about that? I think it's very overwhelming. I think we live in a society where everyone is just in a perpetual state of nervous system dysregulation. Yes. And we, we can learn ways to manage it or like lessen it. Yes. But it's never going to go away because nothing societally and like bigger picture is changing for the better. No. And maybe there's some little pieces like here and there, like maybe like city or county or state. Like I'm fortunate enough to live in Minnesota where we have you know, a lot more freedom and like women's rights still exist and we're more liberal, but I know that's not the case everywhere. And even still, I think it's just such a systemic issue. It's huge. In in 2023, coming up on 2024, we're just like barely starting to talk about it Mm -hmm. and barely starting to understand the impacts that environment, society, And not just the home environment, right? Like the school environment, the extracurricular environment, riding the bus. (laughs) All of these environments play a part in how we learn and navigate and show up in the world. And we can't just pour a cup of water on a burning dumpster fire. Nothing will happen. And I think I've become really skilled at managing parent expectations and being very transparent and upfront of their, like your child is not broken. There is nothing to fix. There is nothing wrong with your child. Once we can accept that and let your child be a child and be who they are, then we can work on the other stuff. But until you can accept them for whatever it is, however they're presenting, We won't be able to move forward because you're always going to have in the back of your mind that something's wrong. They're broken. Something's wrong. And kids can also, no, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I was going to say, kids can feel that, right? When uh, when we talk about attachment, right? When mom and dad are displeased with me or mom and dad, and of course we can say it's not you that they don't like, it's your behavior. Kids don't have the intellectual level to, right, to kind of go through that. When parents are kind of, they're dismissing their children or they are punishing their children for their, and I'm not saying that I'm a huge proponent of like this passive parenting, but gentle parenting when done correctly, modeling self-regulation and also modeling that parents make mistakes. Just because you have a parent title doesn't mean that you're a perfect human. You're not going to just magically have it all together, right? Right. Like you're going to lose your shit sometimes, but it's modeling, apologizing, modeling, hey, I really, you know what? I was really dysregulated. I yelled at you and that wasn't, you didn't deserve that. Sometimes I lose control. Let's talk about this, right? But when we talk about the attachment theory and children kind of picking up on their parents, am I accepted by my parents? Like for who I am, do I have to hide parts of myself? Of course, if your child's stealing or whatever, like you want to address it. But when they feel that disconnect and when they feel like they're not being accepted for who they are, it puts up a block and then it turns into even more mental health, which I'm sure you've worked with a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that also feeds into the imposter syndrome of feeling like, can how do we get people to truly accept people for who they are? Mm-hmm. 
without feeling like it's phony or forced or just something that I'm like taught to say in school. <laughs> and I think there's there's a lot going on like on social media of like let's be our true authentic selves and just show up in the world for who we are. But we also have to be mindful that we won't be for everybody and everybody yeah. won't accept us for who we are, which is 100,000 million percent okay. We are not meant to be for everyone. That is why we are created as individuals. Yes. But I think that's where some of it comes from and maybe why we learn to have imposter syndrome is because we don't ever get the chance to be who we fully are. And that starts in child. 1,010%. And like when we talk about, I don't want to get all woo-woo, but we talk about all the systems, right? Like the schooling system of expecting kids to sit down for eight hours a day, right? And learn a certain way. Kids learn in so many different ways. I was not a school academic learner. I've now turned into an entrepreneur. And, you know, I have a lot of skills that I learned along the way, but I was never a book considered book smart, you know? And I think that a lot of people feel that same way where I have so many of my teens that are so, so focused on their grades. And quite literally, my one teen said to me, my whole identity is based in my grades. When I do not get a good grade, part of my identity is compromised, right? Because they're known as the smart on paper. But I think, you know, it's just so, it's so insane when we look at the schooling system, the medical system on top of that, like all of our systems are also broken and they're designed for one thing. And I could go on and on about all of this, but we'll get, because then I'm going to be texting you and be like, Ryan, can you take that out? I'm scared of getting canceled. <laughs> but you know, when we you're not going to get canceled. I would talk about the one time I was almost canceled, but it was for good reason, but we're, we're not going to get yeah. into that right now. <laughs> right. You know, it's, and I, when I talk about, I'm just going to kind of turn for a sec, but when I talk about how I view mental health and I've always felt this way and thought this way, but then it was backed up by some of the most incredible trauma doctors in the world. But I truly, Ryan, believe that nobody is disordered. They're like ill beyond repair. They're broken. You know, I truly believe that everyone has behavioral adaptations based on what they have learned throughout their life. Intergenerational trauma, absolutely a thing. Preverbal trauma, absolutely a thing. So when I say that, it's where something toxic stress or adversity has occurred and we don't have a narrative to put to it. So we don't have a, like a physical memory, but there's feelings, feelings of uneasiness, feelings of anxiety, depression, feeling like we don't belong. And the more and more I work with people and they come to me with anxiety and depression, their symptoms make sense. I have one client whose mom did not meet her emotional needs growing up in childhood. She has severe depression. Well, if mom didn't accept you, she didn't see you and she didn't meet your needs, you're going to learn to keep yourself very small and your energy levels are not going to be like an average person. Somebody with severe hypervigilance or anxiety, their parent was an alcoholic. They needed to be on guard. They needed to hear the tone and voice. Was there any slurring? Did anybody fall? Is anybody passed out? Their brain is trained to be on high alert. So when you start spinning symptoms, but then clients come to us like, oh my gosh, I hate my anxiety. I can't hold friendships. I overthink everything. But when you start to turn, and not all disorders can be explained like this. Of course, we have like autism and neurodevelopment disorders. But when we look at like anxiety, depression, mood swings, you know, inability to maintain friendships, emotional control, these things make a lot of sense. And when we help clients unravel that, and really cultivate curiosity and compassion for their symptoms, the look on their face, like they look, and then they look at you like, I've never thought of it that way. And you can start seeing like them become a little bit more appreciative of their symptoms, or we can work with them and manage them instead of just trying to change their thinking or get rid of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've, I mean, I've seen that in my work with, with 
kids and adults especially of like oh this is really rooted in something else yes right and once we can once it comes up and we can acknowledge and accept it then you can work through it and get to the other side I want to talk really quickly, briefly about um, eating disorders and kind of the support yeah. in our city. So you, I know that we kind of went on a tangent in book club when we were talking about disordered eating, the bodybuilding industry, and kind of my history as well. But the biggest thing that I've seen with my clients is, I'm going to be honest, 99% of them, male and female, have body or disordered eating or body image issues. I feel like it's just hand in hand with society, growing up in the 90s, all of these things. But one thing that I've found is that the eating disorder like model of treatment is a little bit behind in kind of looking at it this way. My client has been through a handful of residential programs, but has been dismissed each time for showing symptoms. But when we look at an eating disorder and what it is trying to do, it's body autonomy. It's trying to protect. It's trying to maintain control. It makes sense that she's showing symptoms. And I realized that the eating disorder industry has re-traumatized a lot of my clients or they're dismissed. Or they are fired, per se, as a client because they're showing too many symptoms or they have too many comorbid comorbidities. And I'm like, how can we, when, of course, they're going to, they're strangers coming, like, they're working with a stranger. They're coming into an eating right. disorder treatment. This is the only thing that has kept them safe for their whole entire life. And as somebody who struggled with an eating disorder, that was the only way that I had autonomy and control over my environment and my body. So when somebody wanted to strip that away from me, that was very, you saw, you saw like maybe I had was full of attitude. My claws went up, leave me alone, right? So, and talking to my clients about their eating disorder in such a compassionate and understanding way and not labeling them just as Joe Schmo with anorexia or Joe Schmo with bulimia. Like, okay, but why does that make sense? Because their right. whole time through eating disorder treatment, they were told that this was their disorder. They're just disordered. They're sick. They're the problem when it's really not that at all. It's their eating disorder is the only thing that's kept them alive. You know, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because it's really not doing that, right? But to look at it that way has been really, really, it's been really fascinating. And then using parts work um, with that instead of just trying to change their thinking because they know a lot of clients will come to me and say, Bianca, I know my thinking is incorrect. I can't feel differently. That somatic tightness in my chest or that belly feeling. That's what I can't get rid of. I can logically challenge my thoughts all day. I can teach you CBT. I had one client bring her binder and be like, I can teach you. And this has its place. It's wonderful with children. It's a huge yeah. component of after trauma processing, helping them kind of restructure their thoughts. Fantastic. But my one client literally came to me. She's like, I can tell you, here's my thought log done perfectly, but I can't feel differently. The chatter and the intrusive thoughts in my head when I sit down to eat does not go away. So, and that's been like for my clients on my client load right now that all feel the exact same way. So that's one thing that I feel like we're moving in the right direction. I just would hope that it moves a little bit more progressively. Yeah, I think the hope is that we start to think more systemic, like more yes. wide, like yes. the whole system yes. versus just picking and choosing parts of the system that fit to what we're trying to diagnose or label. Yes. And I think we're also in a really tough position because insurance requires us to diagnose, to treat, which isn't always appropriate. You know what's crazy? I never understood that. So all my mentors from Arizona and all the people I meet with are Americans. So they talk about insurance panels all the time. And I never really understood it because I'm Canadian. So in Canada, our insurance is wild. You can have $200 a year in mental health coverage. You can have $5,000. I have one client that has $15,000 in mental health coverage. 
so amazing. But I'm on an American insurance panel for one of my clients and the paperwork. And literally, I, I laughed out loud where it was like two sessions is the problem fixed. But I'm like looking at his history of like severe childhood trauma. And I get it where it's like, hey, they're off work. It's EAP line. They just want, you know, they want kind of like some skills to be able to get back in workplace. I get it. But I laughed out loud where it was like two sessions is a problem fixed where will more sessions be needed? I was like, what, what world is two sessions? You know, so they give you up to six, but then I have to call each time, tell them why they deserve another two and which is they've been great to work with. But I realized that one, the financial compensation for you guys, uh, my dollar is better right now. We have 38 cents on the dollar. So my financial compensation is quite, quite decent. But for you guys working in the States, I wouldn't say it's, you know, like, and I want to tread lightly here, but I wouldn't say it's very fair for your expertise, your schooling, all the work you put in. And then I just laughed out loud where it's like two sessions is a problem fixed. And I was like, no, the problem is not fixed, but I like the enthusiasm here. Yeah. And I think it's part of it is right. Like also for the diagnosis to be credible or logical, mm -hmm. they have to meet so many criteria. Yes. And so many check boxes. And it's, I mean, that still feels very medical model. Yes. Of if X, Y, and Z happened, then we 100% always do X, Y, and Z. Yes. Because it's the black and white thinking in a gray world. Do you guys, do you, I know that the World Health Organization does recognize CPTSD, but we don't, the DSM-5 does not yet. So are you able, we don't diagnose in Canada, so only a psychiatrist or psychologist, I believe, can diagnose. Us as therapists do not master level regardless. Do you, are you able to diagnose CPTSD? Is it recognized by insurance company? No. Just, PS, just PTSD. So that's another thing. I know that we're running out of time, but CPTSD, a lot of my clients come to me. I was misdiagnosed. I have a laundry. I have a whole, I have seven diagnoses, I think, on paper from when I was 16, okay? And then when I learned about CPTSD, I was like, I never aligned with those seven, you know, anxiety, depression, anorexia, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, all of these things. And then I looked at CPTSD and I was like, hmm, this makes a lot of sense. And a lot of my clients coming to me with borderline diagnoses or bipolar diagnoses, a lot of their history falls in line and a lot of their symptoms fall in line with CPTSD. But I can't diagnose, but we do talk about how they manifest, right? And what these look like. So. Yeah. And I think here it has to be in the DSM for it to count, for it to be a diagnosis. Um, yeah, which sometimes makes it really difficult. But, you know, that's like a, a, a greater systemic issue that we likely aren't going to fix in this lifetime. Yes. Um, which is unfortunate. And I think I've seen like my own personal therapist and just therapists in like my my setting and kind of throughout that moving to like the private practice, private pay model is number one, there is a financial component to that, right? Because it shrinks down some overhead. It frees you up from insurance. You, you can, the burnout is less because you can afford to see less clients. Um, and also not putting a label really frees up the way that you kind of navigate and move through your treatment. Yes. Right. And that we're, not, we're treating the whole person. Yes. Not just the anorexia, not just the anxiety, not just the PTSD. Like we get to treat them as the whole person top to bottom and bottom to top. Yes. Mind, body, and soul. Mind, body, yeah. and soul. We are just about out of time. 
any, I have a final question, but any final thoughts about what we've talked about before I ask the question? If you are someone that is struggling or does not feel like they did before COVID, there is lots of reasons for that. Do not deny yourself. If you've had a therapy experience before and it wasn't a good fit, don't deny yourself of this type of support. I understand there's financial constraints, but it is really the best thing you can do for yourself. And you are not broken, disordered, or sick. You don't need therapy. You deserve support. I always tell people that, right? You don't need therapy, but you deserve support. But what is your final question? Um, if no one knew what you did for the rest of your life, what would you do? Oh my gosh. <laughs> the first thing that comes to my mind, you know, on my hard days, right? I said, you know, I don't have to worry about someone taking their own life at a cafe. I just have to, you know, make sure their macchiato is, is done correct. There's times where I'm like, I can work at a cafe and have small talk with people and I don't have to worry about my clients because I do. Right. But I think I would be long story short, I would be living on a beach. And I would sell smoothies at my Shake Shack on the beach and I would surf. And can I surf? No. But what I, I would learn to but surf. But you would learn. Yes. And spend time in the sunshine and lead. And I would do some classes. I would do some like nice retreats. That's what I would do in a, in a, in a future life. It's just a little Shake Shack on the beach making connections, a guava smoothie. That's what I would do. <laughs> Sounds amazing. I'm coming with you. <laughs> There's room for two. Perfect. Costa Rica teaching a yoga retreat is like my ultimate dream. Are you trained in so, yoga? Yeah, I'm a 200 hour RIT. Amazing. Of course yeah. you are. That is amazing. Amazing. Well, I would need a yoga teacher. I'll do the perfect component and I'll make the smoothies. Great. Where can people find you? You can find me at Mindfully Me on Instagram. LinkedIn is Bianca Stefina. My website to book with myself or my team. I do offer coaching internationally and counseling and psychotherapy for Ontario residents. I do have a six-month wait list right now, but my team is accepting. www.mindfully-me.ca And my Facebook page is Mindfully Me Trauma Informed Group Practice. I will actually have a passive course dropping very soon. And I have a 50% off coupon. I will give it to you, Ryan, if you want to put it out to your podcast followers, which talks all about kind of my view on mental health, behavioral adaptations, on actually being sick, responses to the environment, et cetera. So yeah, I will have it for you, for your listeners. Awesome. I can get that from you in the email. This has been such a lovely conversation. Again, I'm so thankful that we were able to make this work and find time in our hectic schedules to record and have this conversation. So again, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your day for being here, for talking with me and the people who are going to listen. It truly means a lot. I appreciate you so much and I'll see you in book club tomorrow. I hope you found today's episode supportive. This conversation, while heavy at times, is one that we should be acknowledging and making an effort to have more often. If you are in the Ontario area and interested in scheduling with Bianca or her team, or following her on social media, you can find the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening and please take care of yourself today.